Welcome to episode 216 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology. Well, we're mostly lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, our uh, a non-lawyer for the news roundup, and this will just be a news roundup, uh, is Nick Weaver, senior researcher at the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley and a lecturer at the Computer Science Department at UC Berkeley. Uh, our lawyer uh, is Paul. Paul Rosenzweig, who is senior fellow at the R Street Institute, founder of Red Branch Consulting, and uh, my deputy at DHS um, uh, in um, uh, the late Bush era. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, uh, host and uh, formerly with NSA and DHS. Uh, um, uh, so let's just jump right do, in. Do you no yeah. longer hold the record? No, I still hold the record, but I, I, we got complaints. People people said, all right, I know, you hold okay. the record for attorney to step down. Sorry, to uh, then, then to those time. who complained, I apologize. That was my bad. I didn't realize that we'd, we'd drop that. Well, I will bring it back occasionally, but only in response to an occasional demand or, you know, your uh, intervention is, is fine. Um, okay, so... We begin with a tweet, I guess. The President uh, of the United States uh, uh, tweets that uh, uh, in response to stories and a uh, um, intervention by President Xi that uh, uh, he's going to uh, uh, undo the penalties that were imposed on ZTE, uh, that he's instructed uh, uh, the uh, Commerce Secretary to work out uh, uh, those penalties because too many Chinese jobs were being eliminated. Uh, this, uh, I, we were going to cover this anyway because it was an astonishing um, punishment. Uh, the, a punishment is, is maybe a month old. But what was remarkable is that ZTE decided it had no option but to cease most of its operations. Uh, um, I guess I'm not surprised. No one in the U.S. could sell them products, and they could hardly quickly put together a package of materials, uh, since what they sell are basically packages of telecommunications gear. They couldn't put together a complete package uh, uh, on really short notice. They couldn't keep everything running. Um, and, and so they began to see, wow, we're just not going to be able to make it. And I think that announcement led Xi to intervene with Trump and led Trump to say, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna save ZTE." Um, it's being covered as I speak on CNN as Trump intervenes to save Chinese jobs. So it's not it's not looking good for the president. But you know, uh, when has CNN said anything nice about him? Um, a, Paul, uh, how do you see this playing out? Well, I mean, I think there's a number of things that that can be teased out of this. The first and at the highest level, is how remarkable it is that uh, we actually do have some real economic weight to throw around. I mean, think of it. Sanctions from the U.S. Department of Commerce killed the second largest telecom company in China. That's not small beer. It's um, not. It was uniquely – this was a unique situation in which we had enormous leverage mm-hmm. and um, they had – so thoroughly antagonized the Commerce Department that the government was willing to impose the death penalty. Well, that, that's the second thing, is um, you know, leaving aside the trading for it now, 
they deserve what they got. Their history of violating U.S. sanctions against North Korea and Iran um, uh, was uh, repetitious, uh, open, notorious, and uh, without any real regard. So, so in a very real sense, ZTE um, had little regard for America's conception of what was in its national security interest. Uh, I think the third point, which is kind of buried in this, is I find it kind of uh, uh, remarkable that we've just reimposed sanctions on Iran, uh, just tore up the JCPOA uh, because it's such a bad regime, and yet the first action that the president has taken after doing so is to waive the penalty for violating sanctions against Iran. Yeah. Uh, uh, I sure hope he's getting something really, really, really valuable, like crushing North Korea's nuclear program or something like that. Because if he's not, he's setting a, a poor precedent, um, all, all, by the way, on top of uh, breaking the general general norm of not interfering directly in a law enforcement you know, sanction that is normally outside the bounds of a presidential intervention. Yeah, this is not a trade war. This is not a trade negotiation. This is about uh, defining uh, our national security and, and and being able to enforce our law against people who have subjected themselves. Right, it's, and it's a particular case. So it's like the president saying, yeah, yeah, he did that murder, but, you know, don't put him into jail because if you let him out, he can help us. Uh, with the nuclear weapons program over here in Los Alamos, which is kind of the closest analogy I can think of. Yeah. Um, I don't even think it's that. Why not? Um, I mean, I was so trying to be first kind. Of all, I was trying to be kind. <laughs> yeah, well, I will be kind for a second. I actually think the death sentence on ZTE was overkill. We should have just extracted an additional half billion dollars from them for – because the death sentence was imposed because it turned out they lied about disciplining employees about all this stuff, et cetera, et cetera. And so the deferred prosecution agreement was, okay, you broke the agreement, we're imposing the death sentence. And I think from a policy point of view, the death sentence was bad because it just reinforces the model that, especially with the U.S. acting like a rogue nation with ignoring our commitments on the JCPOA, um, U.S. tech is a vulnerability, and if you can build your systems U.S. free, you have an advantage. So, for example, if Airbus had sufficient U.S. free on their airplanes, they would be looking at picking up an extra $50 billion in sales from Boeing rather than being in the same position. Um, so this galls me to say it, but I think Trump is right that the uh, – punishment on CTE was too harsh. But what worries me is how did he come to this decision? He just tweeted it out of the blue. Was there a official diplomatic call or was this some back channel where a Chinese official called some bribed Trump friend who forwarded the call because you know this isn't through the normal Fox News decision cycle for the policy whiplash from the Mad King. Um, Tell us what you so really think. How how did this information get to the president? So for once he made the right decision, but I'm still worried because I don't know how that information flow took place. And what other vulnerabilities does that introduce in our system? Don't you think it, 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 it's highly likely that, uh, 
Uh, he got a call from she and she laid it out. She gave him the briefing and since he didn't have a briefing from his people because he didn't need it, uh, he, uh, he took she's briefing and acted on it. That certainly sounds like, uh, uh, the content of the tweet came out of a briefing from, from she. In which case, wouldn't it be the case that the, uh, White House or State Department would release the notes of a call occurring between she and Trump. That's the kind of thing that you note down. Um, that if this was an above board president to president agreement, you would expect by now, especially after the defending Chinese job spin, that they would have released at least some information indicating a legitimate channel yeah it uh it, it, we'll see uh you know if the chief of staff doesn't have the clout he had six months ago and so uh, uh if uh, she and uh, trump want to talk and don't want to have a bunch of notes taken then that's how it's going to be is my guess uh, um uh, so who did the translation then not our people well, who knows oh, god I, 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 I'm not going to speculate that far because it, it's quite possible to have a translator on, but not to have a lot of political control over what is said on either side. To, um, so it, it could easily have been uh, an intervention that was formal after a, a fashion, but hadn't been fully vetted on the U.S. side. I, I, I so kind so of, uh, yeah. my, my real question is this. I'll what happens when Angela Merkel calls and says, you know, those those steel tariffs, um, does she get the same treatment? And if no, not, why not? Um, interesting. Um, she might get a similar treatment, uh, um, but we haven't come down on German industry in quite as aggressive a fashion as we've been talking about coming well, down. I, I picked Germany, though, because uh, just yesterday, John Bolton talked to the CEO council and warned all of the European companies that are continuing to do business with Iran that if they don't pull out now, they would be subject to a significant and substantial uh, set of U.S. penalties. So, in other words, Bolton is threatening European companies with the exact same sorts of penalties that Trump just waived for Chinese companies. Fair enough. Uh, as I say, I don't, I, very few companies are in the position of needing Americans, uh, American material as part True. of what they sell. Uh, but I don't, I, I, I'm not quite. Are you sure about that, Stuart? Anybody who has a computer control system probably has U.S. intellectual IP buried in the control loop. Well, and fair since enough. these days, basically everything has a computer in it. Yes, and if you if you say you may not sell stuff to this person, then uh, it is um, it is a disaster for that person. Now, usually, uh, even well, yeah, if you put impose secondary sanctions, that's the the outcome. Uh, um, so maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we well, do we'll have see. mutually assured destruct destruction because the Germans could do that to us, and soon the Chinese will be doing that to us. I don't think that announcing a death penalty and then commuting it because of a political deal changes the um, incentives for ZTE, they're going to be moving as fast as they can to be in a position where they can thumb their nose at the U.S. government uh, because they came so close to death. And frankly, um, I wouldn't be surprised if Wilbur Ross slow rolls the decision to 
give them what they've asked for. And the slower it goes, the harder it is for ZTE to recover. So we, we could see further chapters inside the U.S. government on this as well. All right. In the end, it's really not ZTE. It's the rest of Europe and China, especially with things like John Bolton's statements. Yep. Well, and uh, Congress is at work on something similar. They have uh, the House uh, Armed Services Committee put uh, put a uh, clause in the 2019 uh, mm-hmm. uh, National Defense uh, uh, Authorization Act that says. If you sell telecommunications services to the Pentagon, uh, you can't have any Chinese and maybe other countries' telecom gear in your network. Um, and Yay! Yeah, that's uh, that's going to be a big deal for a lot of uh, relatively small companies, and it kind of cements the uh what has been reluctance but occasionally a qualified reluctance on the part of companies like AT&T and Verizon to uh to buy the uh, uh Huawei and ZTE equipment so um that um that statute assuming it passes I and I don't think anything the president has done makes that less likely it means that all of the democrats are going to vote for it uh, and the tom cotton republicans as well so uh that's likely to 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 get adopted i i absolutely think that's right it's also probably the right answer it's uh it, it it's been a surprise that we've had 10 years of hating on chinese telecommunications gear uh, at the U.S. government level and almost no legal restrictions on implementation or purchase of those, that equipment. Um, so John Bolton, uh, you've already ragged on him once. Uh, uh, there's, uh, widespread reporting that he's going to get rid of the cyber coordinator position that uh, Rob Joyce held. Um, what do you think? Uh, oh, actually, I know what you think because you wrote, one of the snarkiest things you've ever written. Well, I think it's a magnificent idea. I mean, look, there is no operational reason for, you know, day-to-day management of cybersecurity to happen at the White House level. That's absolutely true. But cybersecurity, more than almost any other policy, you know, cross-cuts across agencies. Department of Justice has equities, DHS has equities, DOD has equities, Commerce has equities. You know, education has a role in mm-hmm. terms of, uh, you know, it, it is the quintessential thing calling out for some leadership and control. Now, you could imagine, I, ima- I guess, that he's not really eliminating it. He's folding it in with other things. His deputy has indicated that she's interested in doing... But you and I both know that the more things are on one person's plate, the the less attention... This is a perfect example of a bureaucratic reality that that you cannot uh, reorganize your way to a better uh, solution by giving more... uh, by by subsuming this within something else. It, It, you know, it will... Maybe it does reflect the fact that cyber is not that critical an issue anymore. I think that's wrong. I mean, if that's a- the actual perception, then that's wrong. Right. <laughs> that's, that's just, that's just factual error. Uh, I suspect it's more about, um, uh, Bolton u- using this amongst many others to put his stamp on. And that's why, uh, Tom Bossert was, um, 
unceremoniously shown the door. It, it, um, and, you know, some, some of that is always good. A new man always needs to put, or a woman needs to put her, his or her stamp on an organization. But this is kind of, uh, burning down the house to no good effect. I, so I think I, it's a I, terrible I, idea. I would, I wouldn't have done it, uh, cause I, I, like you, I think this is really important and it requires a little more detail than a, uh, deputy NSC advisor, uh, can, can provide. Um, but I have trouble getting in high dudgeon about it, uh, because, you know, it, it, look, every president gets the White House he deserves. Uh, and so is this president. Uh, um, let me, let me tell you why it's worthy of high dudgeon. Um, say whatever else you want to about President Trump's other policies in North Korea or Iran or tax cuts or healthcare, everything like that. The one area where we, we had up until now seen continuity and a continuous improvement and going in generally the right direction, right? Yeah, I mean, you could disagree, but, you know, generally, uh, steady as it goes, improvement coming down the pike was in governmental s- cybersecurity policy. So we have just taken one of the few things that was clearly bipartisanly agreed to be doing pretty well uh, and and blown it up. So I agree with you. Uh, it was it was the it was the uh, a, a corner of the White House that followed the regular order that could ha- that was acting as though this was um, the Bush White House or the Obama White House that was just chugging along, uh, having meetings, narrowing differences, sending decisions up. Uh, that isn't the that isn't the White House this president really particularly wants. That's it's why. worse. It was. <laughs> The part of the White House that, to my mind, was actually doing significantly better than Obama. The happy dance I did when the Kaspersky stuff came down the pipe and now the ZTE ban from bases stuff, that made me happy because that made me believe that the people in charge on that subject got it. Yeah, I, so look, I, um, this is a White House where I suspect if you are running an agency, you want to try to do as much as you can without ever invoking the interagency process. I, uh, you just go out and do it. And until the people in other parts of the government who don't want you to do it find a way to actually stop you, you're just going to keep doing it. So, I mean, I, I think that's right. And, and if, certainly if I were at DHS, I'd just, you know, chug as far and as fast as I could in whatever direction I thought. But that's what gets us into trouble. I mean, you know, the, it, it isn't that the people at DHS are stupid. It's that they have this view of it, the view you and I share, Stuart. But that doesn't mean, that means we're not paying attention to the other things. What is, how are we going to judge the vulnerabilities equity process now? To take the classic example, it has to be one that has commercial value on one side, security value on the other, right? Offensive and defensive consideration, all gone. Or, or maybe no, all, all subsumed back into the intelligence community is my guess that they will say uh, we don't need to tell this to bring this to the forward because we're making the call ourselves uh, and who's going to stop us? That's right. I, uh, okay. Um, 
Speaking of DHS, they've uh, uh, been uh, ringing the bell on uh, Russia and election uh, uh, hacking. Uh, and um, uh, we have a, a report from Senate Intelligence that says uh, uh, the Russians actually got into some of the election systems deep enough that they could have changed the uh, records of who was uh, uh, registered to vote, which would have been massively disruptive. And uh, Nick, you've written on this. Uh, how bad could it be? Well, it would have been bad in 2016. It's going to be even worse if they actually exploit it in 2018. We're looking at a pretty significant race in the House. Now, imagine what damage to the fabric of society the Russians could do if they take, say, a dozen or two dozen contested House districts, take the top 10 most Republican precincts in those districts and deregister 10 percent of the people. It would be a nightmare because it would cast the election as illegitimate. There'd be lines, around, there'd be lines around the block. People would have to uh, cast provisional ballots but this is all people would give up yep people would react badly and say what you will about 2016 trump is our president he was elected fair and square and it burns me up when people on either side attack the basic legitimacy of the election the election needs to be very secure from such overt manipulation. And the real danger we face is not hacking of vote totals, which is rather decentralized and is getting better and better, but hacking the registration process in a way that is designed to be visible. So, yes, uh, I, that could be bad, although with proper planning – you can solve that, right? You 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 have uh, printouts of all the uh, uh, people who are on the list as of three weeks ago or six weeks ago, at a point when you were actually able to identify any hacking, uh, and then you distribute those. So if people don't show up on the database, you can go back to the paper records and check to see that they are uh, actually registered to vote as of six weeks ago. Most how do you know uh, most most, most don't have paper right records. Ones. Uh, most states actually don't have paper records. Wow. So, but you, well, yeah. yeah, we do have paper. We do have printers. You can print uh, a, a list of people who should oh. be eligible in a precinct. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but that, that is the functionality from the, but it, usually that goes back to an ER database for, uh, uh, true story. Um, I can't name the client for the reasons that will soon become obvious, but I told them the best way around this problem was to simply encrypt the voter registration database, um, and, you know, it, it would make it very you, – then you'd have to do this at the precinct level, right, right? Um, instead of at the ER level. At the, at the, uh, and the guy said, we can't. I said, why not? He said, our, our servers are so old that they can't support modern – Encryption. Uh, encryption algorithm, you know, too old and too slow. I said, buy new servers. And he said, um, if we spend all of our capital expense budget for the next 10 years, we'll have enough money. 
to wow. get new servers. So, so I mean, it, it, you know, it, it is you're you're being jocular about printing, and and maybe that's the answer. But you know, California has 50 million voter registrants. That's a lot of freaking paper, Stuart. Yeah. All right. Also, uh, I'm, I'm, also I'm not you can't just do a print snapshot. What you actually have to do is do something where you have basically a printer, just an old school dot matrix printer for every precinct. <laughs> and every time a voter roll changes, you put it out on that particular printer and then you bring that whole pile to the precinct for Election Day. And that's a nightmare. Okay, I you know wouldn't bother me if you said uh, we're going to close registration six weeks before the election. Now you got to do. You know, there are some mechanical things you'd have to do, but uh, I you know I I think uh, any uh, Secretary of State who isn't ready for this should be fired because this is yeah this is obvious. This is the this is what the Russians will do, or the North Koreans, or the Iranians. Uh, um, somebody's going to start doing this, and it is going to be obvious, and it's going to be obvious who screwed up by not preparing for it, and who was prepared. Just just a fact check: eighteen million registered voters in California, not okay. fifty, but still a big number. Right. Okay, I, I won't make jokes about uh, how many of them are illegal immigrants voting uh, uh, for uh, Donald Trump's opponents. Uh, um, okay, uh, let's talk law. Oh, really? Yeah. Jeez. What the hell? Um, Fourth Circuit has written a whole bunch of uh, uh, law, you know, really an elaborate uh, amount of law about when and how you can search people's phones when they cross the border. Uh, uh, and, you know, it looks as though we lived in the golden age of border searches uh, uh, because basically we just, you know, the rule was, yeah, you can search it. And we did. Uh, now it turns out that, that thanks to the enthusiastic lobbying of civil liberties groups plus a Supreme Court that, you know, doesn't exactly know what it wants, but more privacy, please. Uh, we're getting an elaborate set of rules, some of which seem to conflict. What's the Fourth Circuit say? Well, the Fourth Circuit says a lot of things. I, the basic answer is uh, if you're entering the country at a border checkpoint in the Fourth Circuit, so if you're landing at Dulles, mm-hmm. uh, no longer can the government uh, seize and copy your the data on your cell phone uh, simply because you're crossing the border. They now must have some reasonable it, – it's unclear exactly how it's going to work out, but it looks like reasonable suspicion uh, uh, and possibly exigent, exigent requirements to be able to search it uh, there at Dulles Airport. This is a sea change, as you said. Um, border search – the border search exception to the Fourth Amendment requirement is grounded in history that goes back literally to the founding of the nation. Uh, the very first customs laws had um, plenary search authority for our, for the revenue cutters that became the U.S. Coast Guard. Um, and, uh, and it's been that way uh, at our nation's borders for 220 years. Uh, the only limits up until recently have been uh, due process shock the conscience limits, which is to say that I could not uh, conduct a cavity search right. uh, without some good cause to do so because that was really just too oogie. Um, all of a sudden, uh, electronic data is getting is going off on its own little tangent. 
Well, the, it's getting its own special exception. Well, the Supreme Court did that. Right. By, by and, saying and, and it's because, cell phones are different because right. they, they tell you so much. But when That's you cross not, the border, we looked, we looked at all the pictures in your luggage. We looked at your diary if we wanted to. Uh, this was when we were it, DHS. Uh, uh, all <laughs> of those things uh, were fair game. And there's nothing more sensitive to, uh, than those on your phone. Uh, it seems that seems right to me. I mean, you know, if you go back to the to the Supreme Court case Riley, that basically said cell phones are different, and you ask why are they different? Uh, it's the only honest answer you can give is, well, of course, it seems a little different to us. Right. Um, uh, it too, how much is too much? Well, I, we don't know, but this is too much, and. Um, well, it was Stalin who said uh, quantity has a quality all its own. Yes, exactly. And that, one, one, death is, one death is a tragedy. Ten million is just a statistic. One search is, is that and ten million. Uh, and and I actually sort of get that. I mean, big data is big is a real phenomenon. More data makes more information. But uh, it's all it's not a really good line to. Yeah, to defend, I mean, let's take middle cases, right? Yeah, what about if half of your diary is in a book and half of your diary is on your laptop? Do we get to read the half that's in the, uh, that's written down in hand and not the half that's in, uh, on the laptop? That seems to be where we're headed and I don't get that. Yeah, so I think that we're in for a, a long period of confusion in the lower courts as a lot of judges take Riley and read it for all it's worth, basically. Everything about a phone is different, and searches can be regulated in brand new ways because it's a phone, because the court, uh, Supreme Court said that phones are different. Uh, so we're going to see I a lot of that. I think there is a difference. Okay. That's different from what – it's the orders of magnitude cost issue, that whenever you have a surveillance technology change that makes the cost of the action one to three plus orders of magnitude cheaper – then it's time to rethink things. And this is, what was it, Sotomayor's concurrence in one of these uh, GPS cases? Jones. Um, Jones. And I think there is something different just in the volume of data and the ease of doing it and that it's really like photocopying every piece of document in anybody's luggage but at the same time, I don't think it'll make a big operational difference because all the cases that I've seen where border search introduced phone evidence is put in, they had slam dunk reasonable suspicion. Fair enough. They, I, yes, I, it, it is the case that uh, oh, there are too many people crossing our borders to, to inspect anything if you don't have a suspicion. Uh, uh, there's some interesting arguments that – uh, in the uh, suggestions in the decision that you have to be able to tie your search to some border consideration, which means that outbound searches are a lot harder to justify than inbound. Inbound, you can always say we're trying uh, – inbound to non-Americans – it, it's basically Katie Bardadari. You say, uh, we need to know whether this is somebody who should be admitted. We have legal authority to decide to admit them. So uh, we're looking at this data to see if there's a person that we don't want enter, entering the country. But outbound Americans, it's very hard to come up with a border justification. You know, what What, what really is is most interesting about this is how um, dismissive of history 
the the opinion really is and the idea. I mean, border integrity has been a definition of national sovereignty. See Donald Trump, national sovereignty, you know, control the border with walls, basically since the Peace of Westphalia in 1648. Uh, Emmerich Vettel wrote about it. But it, it was in the only in the Nation. last three years that we discovered that, that border integrity was racist. Right. Or, or, or more accurately, it was only in the last three years that we discovered that phones were sufficiently different <laughs> that border integrity should matter in all cases except them. Yeah. It really, uh, you know, I'm, I'm no border, you know, uh, n- uh, uh, Nazi. <laughs> Uh, I didn't want, I was trying to find a different word yeah, than that. Yeah, stuck. sorry to anybody. But I'm, I'm no border, you know, uh, a lover, uh, in that sense, but this is really quite a fundamental change in the conception of the government's relationship to who and what can come and leave our country. Yeah. Yeah. All right. On uh, the other hand, yeah. unless you have at least some standard, um, reasonable suspicion or whatever. There's nothing that would stop a true blanket border search on cell phones these days where you literally have to plug in your phone at the passport check. And I think we'd all agree that that would produce huge problems. Fair enough. I, I, although I don't think actually you could do that because uh, uh, our border depends on moving uh, people through 30 seconds max uh, 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 FaceTime with a, an agent. Uh, uh, but I, I can imagine writing an Stuart, app. that sounds like a challenge for uh, <laughs> forensics people. How yeah. much can you learn from a phone in 30 seconds? Exactly. And you will be stunned. I will be. All right. Um, speaking of being stunned uh, – the Iranians now have had time to think about what it means to have uh, Donald Trump uh, withdraw from the JCPOA, and I can't believe they're happy with it. And the question is, how long is it going to take for them to try to counterattack by reviving the cyber operations or expanding the cyber operations that they've been running against uh, the United States and other countries? I uh, I know they've got some – there's a good insect report uh, uh, that talks about their capabilities uh, um, that suggests that uh, it, once they start, they may get rather more retaliation than they bargained for. Didn't didn't uh, the New York Times already report just yesterday that CrowdStrike is already reporting an uptick in what it – characterizes as Iranian activity. Yeah. So that's 48 hours? Yep. Uh, the answer, that's the answer to your question. Right. I think it, it you know, the real, it, it's it's a beautiful asymmetric response, fits perfectly in their MO. They've used it uh, against all of their opponents in the region. Uh, they've used it before against the United States. See uh, uh, the Sands Hotel and, and Sheldon Abelson. You know, so... Uh, uh, we'd be idiots not to expect that response now. Yep, Nick, anything to add? And they would be idiots not to try it. <laughs> well, you know, we haven't actually done anything kinetic up to now. Uh, and uh, uh, we certainly have kinetic options. If they really hurt uh, hurt us badly, that is an, always an option. Uh, but it wouldn't be... 
uh, it wouldn't be pretty. Unfortunately, we have a, a lot of allies who would like nothing better than to see a, uh, a retaliation that was kinetic. Uh, so we're not going to get a lot of restraint in the region that, uh, if they do things that we really consider beyond the pale. So the other country that has capabilities in this area that people underestimate is Nigeria. There's a great CrowdStrike report about the organization and sophistication of Nigerian scammers who use uh, um, hacking and a variety of electronic email and other uh, methods for scamming very substantial sums out of uh, Western and especially U.S. Uh, um, companies. Uh, uh, Nick, did you look at that report? Yes, a uh, very interesting report. And it's actually not that surprising. So uh, a couple years back, I ended up uh, doing a little consulting on a case where it ended up being a foreign firm that was defrauded and tricked into wiring money to a different account. But the account in the U.S. was basically recruited as a money mule. And one thing the Nigerians have been very, very good at is recruiting suckers. And in the past, it's been suckers for the Nigerian prince business. But shifting to the money mule problem, the getting people to open bank accounts, to have bank accounts, to receive $10,000, take that out, and Western Union 8000 of it onto Nigeria, that takes a particular set of social engineering talent, and that is often the bandwidth limit for so much bank fraud. And so it reading the report, it looks like what has happened is the social engineering experts have expanded onward using that social engineering skill combined with the technical skills involved in getting people to wire to different locations to get that economic bandwidth needed to extract money from uh, compromised bank accounts. So it looks it's as th- impressive. Yeah, it looks as though a lot of this is a lot of the people at the bottom of this uh, uh, system are college students in Nigeria. This is how you get get your, work your way through college is scamming uh, uh, suckers in the United States. Yeah, and um, this has been a growth industry for years in there. So Nigeria and some of the neighboring countries that. Vice, for example, did a great documentary on one of the neighboring countries' culture of the 419 scammers. And that there's only so many suckers you can extract with the Nigerian princes at this point, or the email saying Christopher Ray offers you 2.5 million. Yeah, but if you can get um, into a system and, and, and pretend to be the CEO plausibly and ask for a money transfer from the CFO that sounds like money transfers you've requested before, uh, you can, you can make a boatload of money doing that. And in order to do that transfer, you also need the money mule infrastructure of a whole bunch of Smurf accounts that take those electronic transactions, turn them into cash and wire it back home. And they already have the expertise in that side, too. So it's really this combination of social engineering to initiate the transfer and social engineering to build the cash out network needed to take advantage of it. Yeah. So it uh, it 
turns out that uh, of getting the entire world online means that anybody in the United States who's earning minimum wage has more money than 95% of the people who are online and is a target for uh, uh, getting scammed. Uh, uh, so this is just going to go on. Uh, for a very long time until we figure out how to uh, uh, identify and then uh, disincentivize the people who are doing it. All right, let me let me close because we're over. I uh, but I did want to ask about uh, uh, the Uber uh, uh, report uh, about the pedestrian that the 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 bicycle that uh, their autonomous vehicle hit because there's some reason to think that their quick settlement was, uh, well, providential. Uh, Nick? (laughs) Yeah, so they settled in a nanosecond. And things are coming out that say basically what happened is the LADAR sensor did see the pedestrian crossing the street, but did not react probably because they were working on tuning down the sensitivity because you don't want to go breaking for a trash bag floating across the roadway. And what I think they did is Uber relies on the quote-unquote safety driver more than any other of these researchers right now. And they probably just turned down the sensitivity on how big something has to be to react to the point where a person is too small for the car to consider it a problem. A person with a bicycle. Um, yes, person with a bicycle. God. And I'm starting to think if there is ever a case for criminal liability for programming, it's going to come up in the context of things like what Uber just did. Well, don't 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 rule out Tesla getting there first, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, because uh, uh, they've now they, they, their car ran into a uh, fire truck at about sixty miles an hour, apparently without braking, uh, and Tesla, which is enthusiastic about trashing anybody who drives their car who says something bad about it, within minutes says, uh, "Oh yeah, we don't know whether he had autonomous drive on or not." And even if he didn't have autonomous drive, this says that the emergency braking system, which is always on, wasn't working. Um, uh Uh-oh. And let's face it. If Tesla needs somebody to be prosecuted for this, it's their marketing department who decided autopilot was a good name for a system where you're supposed to be paying attention all the time. So I'm I'm interested in this because um, autonomous vehicles – in the abstract, uh, when you run the numbers, are almost certainly going to be safer than having people drive these things. We're going to end up better off with them. But getting there is going to turn out to be remarkably rocky precisely because these cases are going to be taken apart and we're going to see why there was uh, uh, an accident. And it's going to look really stupid in retrospect, no matter how good it looked in the lab. Uh, and the responses of the companies settle quickly, uh, dummy up. Uh, or as Tesla was doing before it dummied up, uh, uh, trash the driver who died uh, in your blog posts. Uh, uh, none of that is going to make Silicon Valley look good. Do you, do you really think that's the case? I mean, we, we've made the transition to autopilot in airplanes. Yeah, even though the first set had, you know, some some of the same problems, misidentified the horizon, 
uh, that sort of thing. Uh, nowadays, I mean, yeah, there's, there's bumps. Okay. So it's a transition issue. Nowadays, it's, it's, you know, your, your airplane pretty much can take off and land. I mean, without, yeah. I mean, in, uh, we could have, Autonomous planes tomorrow. So we don't know what's going on uh, up there, uh, right? There's there's somebody sitting in the in the seat, uh, and we're just going to uh, assume the best uh, is my guess. Uh, I hope so. Uh, but I th- I I just think that uh, every one of these accidents is going to look um, either preventable or will look like the weird something weird. It's you know we know that people fall asleep, people get drive drunk. And that bad things happen, and we're used to that. We're not used to the idea that somebody made a decision that in order not to break for plastic bags, uh, they should uh, hit people with bicycles. All right. And the other thing that I think has happened is we have two companies, Tesla and uh, Uber, who on the self-driving stuff seem to be safety third, well, top five, maybe, and that's going to hurt everybody else because, like, Waymo and uh, GM are doing really careful work. Their systems are vastly better than what Tesla or uh, Uber are doing. And they're the ones that are going to end up hurting because they're going to have to deal with the fallout of the Uber shenanigans. Yeah. So I, the, the Baker's rule for understanding Silicon Valley is you never understand Silicon Valley by looking at the way the richest com- companies behave because they can afford to uh, do a bunch of things they don't care very much about uh, uh, just to save themselves hassle. You look at the companies that are under financial stress and say, what do they prioritize? Because that's the core values in Silicon Valley. So Twitter doesn't doesn't care about uh, 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 privacy anywhere near as much, uh, and it certainly doesn't mind disadvantaging conservative voices uh, on a whim uh, because they, they can't afford to put in place a bunch of management that will uh, hide some of their worst instincts from users. That's my uh, quick assessment, and that means that Uber and maybe Tesla, under financial pressure, are making decisions that um, other companies might have made and uh, will make if we don't make it clear that that's not ex- ex- acceptable behavior. All right. Uh, I want to thank Paul Rosenzweig and Nick Weaver for a really uh, uh, entertaining exchange. This has been episode 216 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're still looking for a part-time intern uh, in our Washington office to work on uh, the uh, uh, podcast. Uh, 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 Paul Rosenzweig is holding up a sign that says, you're two hours over your deadline, uh, and I apologize to everybody <laughs> who's gotten this far and is still listening. It's only uh, 20 minutes, but uh, two hours was more amusing. All right. Uh, <laughs> if you have a guest interviewee to suggest, I promise we will not run over uh, by two hours. If we have a guest interviewee, uh, send it to uh, send their your nomination to uh, Step uh, CyberLawPodcast at steptoe.com, and we'll send you a highly coveted. Cyberlaw podcast mug in return, assuming it hasn't been somebody who's already been on or already asked to be on. Um, and coming up, we've got Nick Bilton, uh, author of American Kingpin about the uh, Silk Road 
website and Bitcoin uh, uh, disaster. Uh, Kirsten Nielsen, the Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, uh, and other guests. Uh, so we hope you'll join us for those and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 